What's up, all of you beautiful people, and welcome back to the All Eyes Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. My name is Robert Donaldson, and you can find me on Twitter at RobDFB. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Thad Nelson, who you can also find on Twitter at TNels20. And I'll just say, Thad is a must-follow on there, and if you're an Iowa football fan, and at this point, we're basically one week out from Iowa, Indiana, so get on over there, hit that follow button. Um, That said, let's immediately hop right into this thing. You know, this entire podcast is going to be dedicated to one topic. Is Brian Ferentz a good offensive coordinator? So... I have my opinion on that, and I'm sure Thad does have a lot of opinions to offer as well. And to be honest, this episode could go a lot of different ways. I'm not sure what his opinion is. I don't know if he fully understands what my opinion is. So, Thad, I'm going to throw it to you. And without going, I guess, into too much depth about Brian specifically right now, what in your eyes makes up a good offensive coordinator and someone, and like differentiates someone from being a good or bad offensive coordinator? Yeah. So before I even get into that, first thing we'll say is uh, if you know how coaches think on a lot of things and they and he does not care what anybody thinks of him and the job they do. And that's a good trait. So start at that. Um, One thing just I think offensive coordinators and so many coaches in general uh, are judged too much on what they do on Saturday or if it's an NFL coach on Sunday. Because the really good coordinators are especially talented at what they do from Sunday through Friday. So it's getting a plan of what's going to work or what you think is going to work. And part of that is personnel-based. It's how is another team going to match up to what you do. So what they do to prep and plan for that and then to install it and install it in a way that it references things you've been practicing and to reference it and get it installed within those couple of days. Because especially in the college game, the coaches are really limited about the amount of time they are hands-on with players. And I don't want that to get confused with Division One football players spend so much time on their sport. You know, they're in there for hours doing all sorts of things, but the coaches are really only hands-on for a limited amount of time. So they need to be able to have that plan, install that plan, and have the players master that plan in a short window. You know, because the last couple days, you're just putting finishing touches. You know, maybe you're getting, here's our fourth down calls. Here's our two-point conversion calls, things like that. So the best ones are the best from Sunday to Friday. And then Saturday, you know, getting that rhythm of making the right play calls at the right times. And, you know, one thing they're really good about is just, it's not always getting the right play call, but making sure you don't have the wrong play call at a certain time. And I think that's what the best ones do is they have that great balance of avoiding trouble, you know, and and getting rid of the bad play calls and timing just enough of the right ones. Because, Honestly, a game probably comes down to about five, six offensive plays. If you really break it down, there's probably five to six pivotal offensive plays per game in a well-contested game that really matter. So they master that on Saturday. They master that you know, back and forth of uh, the really high-end plays and the low-end plays. 
you know, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up Sunday to um, Sunday through Friday. Um, I do think that's definitely an under talked about point, but there's a reason for that, right? Especially when you're on the outside looking in, you don't know exactly what they're doing behind the scenes or in practices necessarily down to a T or even the film room. But I guess if you're talking about an offensive coordinator from that perspective and you're trying to nail down, all right, well, how good is he at prepping, right? How good is he at getting ready for the game ahead? I think a good indicator on that is, you know, situational plays. So third downs and five, third down and 15, certain plays that almost are shoehorning you into a certain kind of play call. Um, Also, I do think the first 10 to 15 plays is a really good indicator because, again, even in the NFL, the first 10 to 15 plays, if you're dealing with a good offensive coordinator who knows what he wants to do, it's going to give you a really good, strong indication of what to expect the entire game. Um, obviously they're not going to be the same kind of play calls, but it's going to be that same kind of dimension that it's operating within. Now, personally, I can't speak on a lot of that because of that very reason. You know, the only thing I can really look at and objectively evaluate is based on what happens on Saturday. So when I'm evaluating an offensive coordinator, a play caller's ability without the ample background knowledge of the, uh, pre-established coaching hierarchy, um, past coaching experience or the location or even a program's foundation for what they want to accomplish, right? I lean on a a few different factors. Um, And just to list those factors out plainly, I focus on play design and not necessarily variety of personnel groupings, but are you mixing up designs and adding small wrinkles to pre-snap and even post-snap looks that if well executed can really mess up with any defense? From there, I think it's good to look at play call sequencing, which basically relates to are you calling those plays with an added element or wrinkle at an opportune time in relation to previous play calls, or is it just good design called sporadically and it just happens to work because you have so much more talent or the defense just isn't that good or whatever. Um, From those two main elements, for an offensive coordinator or play caller, you can start to dive a whole lot deeper into things. You know, you can start looking at is the offensive coordinator designing plays that put his guys in a position to be successful. And that can be anything from acknowledging that your QB struggles throwing certain routes like corner routes, 15 yards downfield, or struggles to place balls well on deep dagger routes or post routes. And you can basically remove those patterns as much as possible, or at least alter the progressions to make those patterns less viable options or basically just clear routes or dummy routes, right? And ultimately, you have to evaluate whether or not your play caller or OC is taking full advantage of the talent that he has at his disposal. And this point is where everything gets really murky, especially in college football, because certain coaches and programs value certain players or a certain style of player more than another player. And from the outside looking in, you have to question whether or not those valuations are coming from the OC himself or more so an attempt to live up to past success or live up to a pre-established foundation that has been previously solidified in that program from either a long-term AD, a head coach, or just based on your region and the ability to recruit um, certain guys and almost having to shoehorn certain guys into a mold that isn't really um, ideal for you. I think you brought up a really good point because when I was talking about that, I think the Sunday through Friday is what helps make it's one thing that makes a good offensive coordinator but for us to evaluate evaluation is all about saturday look they're paid to win games 
and to have the offense help win games. So your evaluation is based off of that. And I thought you brought up a couple good points about, you know, what does your what do your players do? And obviously on the offensive side, that starts at the quarterback position. So we mentioned a lot last year, early in the season, Spencer Petrus really struggled with screen passes, had poor footwork, uh, which led to poor ball location, um, seemed rushed at times. And then all of a sudden, after about three games, it was axed for about three more games. And finally, at the end of the season, it came back and it looked much more under control. Um, And it might be sometimes it's cleaning up the footwork. Sometimes it's just getting over how do I, you know, pace it or, you know, directionally, what side am I going to? So for the offensive coordinator, he's figuring in, you know, what are my players capable of doing at each individual spot? What are the opposing players capable of doing? And what is their scheme going to be? And you mentioned those first few plays. You're trying to anticipate, based usually on film and past tendencies, how an opposing defense is going to react to your personnel, to your alignment, and those things. So you're trying to get that feel in those first scripted plays and then base anything. Adjustments is a word that will come up a lot, but really what that means is just figuring out what you think is going to work best against that as you go. And I know we're going to get into it a lot. We're going to talk about uh, the three-hour podcast that had Brian Ferentz. But one of the really good points he mentioned is, so last year they played Nebraska. And Nebraska did what they expected. However, they didn't match up certain personnel groups the way they expected. So when they got into those groups, the things they were planning to do was not working because it was not what they were anticipating seeing as a matchup. And then once you figure out, oh, they're going to match up this personnel group or this alignment in this way, that's when you can make those, again, adjustments, or that's where you can make those play calls based on that experience. All right. So I'll turn it to you. Define Brian Ferentz in one word if you had to pick. Good, great, average, bad, mundane, exciting. What comes to mind when you think of a a Brian Ferentz offense? I'm going to go off the board. I'm going to go improving. Um, okay. So I'm going to go improving in the way I see it when he started. I think he's always had a an excellent football mind and an offensive mind. I think he's really good in that standpoint. I mean, he comes from spending time with Bill Belichick and being an offensive assistant and going through and what the Patriots do as far as their fluidity, how they can morph into different ideas from week to week. And come up with a plan that's based on what you believe in. So if you're a coach, what you're thinking when you're setting up your offense going into a year, you know, you have your core beliefs. This is what I believe are successful concepts. And usually, again, it comes to those concepts. So you have those. And then from there, it's how do we hit those concepts with our personnel? So that could be something about dealing with um, structure of routes. It could be blocking schemes. It could be uh, use of a screen game or your run game. So you're going through all those things, but you have your core concepts and then you're window dressing those concepts into different formations and personnel. So, you know, Iowa is a team that in the past has used a lot of quarterback waggle, you know, play action, roll back out to the side, Um, tight ends hold on their blocks and release but you could get that out of a lot of different looks so you're incorporating that concept that you believe in 
with different looks to try to get it so the defense doesn't always know that's the concept you're going every time you go to that formation or that personnel grouping. I agree. And I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say methodical, you know, you, you end improving. And I think that's a good word because, you know, it has been improving. You go back to 2017, that Iowa Wisconsin game. I think it was the single worst offensive play calling experience that I've ever watched. I'm not, not kidding. Like in NFL college, I think it might be the actual worst just based on the play designs he was choosing to implement and the timing of those play calls and just the fact that the production was so trash. Um, you go to 2019, Wisconsin, right? That's still a good Wisconsin team. Iowa nearly loses. That was one of the best play calling uh, just displays and I guess you choosing to implement certain designs that I've ever seen. There were certain things in that game that and you know really resulted in Iowa losing that game as narrowly as they did. But a lot of it was came down to execution and not necessarily play calling. And there were a lot of throws and a lot of plays in that game for Iowa on offense that probably should have resulted in something a lot more positive. Um, that turn of events in just two years. Now, that was crazy. Now, you fast forward to last year or you rewind to last year. I think across the board, there were so many good examples of just play calling game after game. And what you did see was probably one of the strongest cores I was had on offense in quite some time. And that's why those numbers, you know, are so eye popping. I think it's just kind of that blend of, yeah, good coaching and great execution can take an Iowa team pretty far. You have to get those players responding to that. And that's the other part where I've seen them improve. You know, Tyler Goodson, Goodson shows up. you got to get him involved in certain ways. You know, with Sam Laporta last year, I believe, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'm pretty sure he led the team in targets. So that's something that you're you're looking to get into. And with that evolution and how he's improved, it's been the start of games. It's been Iowa's third down rate has been improving. Uh, the play calls on fourth down when they go for it. And kind of the hidden thing that I look at is those situations where you think they might be going for it on fourth down. What's that third down call? Because that's a really important one. And, and when a coach, like for Iowa, I would guess that most of the time when they go for it on fourth down, they know that going into that third down. Hey, this is a fourth down optional series or possession or whatever. So those third down calls are really important. And it's a really good gauge, in my opinion, of what the coach is thinking and where his trust level is and how much they're forcing the issue on that third down. If they can get into a fourth down manageable, which opens up the door to, okay, now it's really might be a play of a one-on-one. We can match our guy up the way we want it, and we can adjust in this way. And that's one area that I've also seen that improvement is how Iowa gets into those fourth down manageables, um, creating safe plays that help them eventually score points. You know, and let's try to transition a little bit because that point that you just brought up, I think ties into the first point on this little segment that I'm going to run by you. Um, let's go through some common criticisms about what you hear from Brian, just kind of in general, um, one by one, and at least detail what we think about each statement. Okay, so the first one I see all the time, not enough deep balls. I think that ties in kind of to what your point just was, because 
you know, Iowa fans are always bringing this up. And I mean, they're not really that wrong, right? I mean, there's definitely comparatively to a lot of these other college offenses, a lack of deep balls in comparison. But there's obviously a reason for that. You know, Iowa's lack of deep ball shots really kind of correlates with their QB play rather just like scheme wise. Um, for as long as I can remember, it's always been just a pure progression kind of offense, right? Like the only times they're really taking those downfield shots is off of some kind of manipulation of the line of scrimmage, whether it's an end around or a fake screen or, you know, something like that. You know, what, what's your take on that? It, I think it's a fair take. You know, you look at the numbers and for the last several years, I've been charting every pass that Iowa quarterbacks make and, um, I put out and I'm planning to put something out before this, before the season starts, just kind of, a, of history, but those deep shot numbers, um, you know, they're not very high, but you look nationwide and it's not like they're in the bottom quarter, you know, they're probably not quite exactly middle, but they're in that, you know, from the middle 50% to the bottom quarter, they're somewhere in that range. Uh, traditionally, if you're just going to look at a pure percentage of passes. And there are times when I want them to take a deep shot. And I thought they had players that were worth trying it more than they did. And I think that's a fair criticism at times. But it's also a situation where you mentioned the quarterback's got to throw it and the receiver's got to make a play. And it's not a high percentage play. And you know, the other thing with this and slight tangent, it makes a lot more sense like in the NFL to do that more often because the advantage of pass interference in the NFL at the college level on a play that is probably going to hit the big play. A lot of defensive players are just going to grab and take 15 yards. So, you know, you lose that like that added bonus of the option and is a 15 yard penalty helpful for the offense? Absolutely. But it's not necessarily a high percentage pass to go deep. And, you know, we've we've watched situations that look like it's going to be in a perfect situation. And then all of a sudden, you know, the ball is just slightly off on a deep throw. And now all of a sudden you're looking at your next play being a, a really hard situation. So I think it's an area that is fair criticism. You can want the deep pass more. Um, but it's not like I was way out of line nationwide on that end. You know, I agree. And, and before I, I tie back into that, your point that you just made, um, I do want to clarify pure progression offense for people who don't know, it just means that you're going one, two, three, and there's not really like that win route on the field, right? There's like a one, one, the first uh, progression is going to be like a corner or your second progression is going to be like a slant and third is like a check down, that sort of thing. Um, but what you're what a lot of offenses actually do in college football, especially you see is because of the wider hashes is the win route, right? You see a lot of these spread offenses kind of run this win route or air raid offenses run this win route. And this is where the Iowa offense differs from a lot of these college programs that you see with the 500 passing yards a game numbers and these crazy passing yardage numbers is they actually go through progressions. You know, like when you look at old school Baylor with Art Bryles or Mike Leach, you know, they have this guy who they're basically saying we're going to have him just go one-on-one with a corner on a deep pattern and he's it's going to be a boomer bust sort of play right and and teams do run this quite a bit especially cuz you can space out guys in college quite a lot but that's just not 
I was the way that I was built. I mean, they're built on, you know, taking a five step, seven step drop and hitting those your feet on time with certain patterns. And but ironically enough, um, some of the more monumental plays I was had in recent memory have come on a win route. You know, Tavon Smith's touchdown in the Big Ten championship game win route. The touchdown in 2019 Wisconsin to Tyron Tracy was a win route. Um, and but and there's also been more examples of uh, ones to Amir last year in the Purdue game, um, Amir against Minnesota two years ago, and they just didn't work out and nobody remembers them because they ended up incomplete. And what happens is that you just wasted a play. And, you know, you have to have a quarterback that you can trust to throw the ball 30 yards downfield, maybe more sometimes. And sometimes those throws are just going to be sailed or whatever for whatever reason. We talked about with Nate Stanley sailing passes early in his career. Um, Spencer Petrus last year sailed some passes early in his career. Um, And so a lot of those plays that are deep ball shots and they're there, you just don't remember or acknowledge because it ended up incomplete. I think of an analogy to like basketball, you know, some teams are going to run motion. Some teams are going to be pick and roll based. It doesn't mean one is necessarily better than the other. And what tends to happen is those things are very cyclical. You know, a team gets, does one thing really well. Everybody kind of adjusts to it. Somebody comes back a little bit the other way and it kind of ebbs and flows back and forth. One isn't necessarily, in my opinion, the best way or better than another way. They're two different ways to look at offense. And some of that is going to come down to the type of players you can recruit and then structuring your offense or your team around that. And with that, you know, I think some of those schools, it's a good thing to try for them because a lot of coaches aren't planning at being at the same school for 23, 24 years like Kirk Ferentz has been at Iowa. And I'm not saying that was his plan going in, but for them, it's about having a structure that can work long term. It's not a, well, if I can get one really good season out of these four, I can parlay that into my next position, which you're just going to have a lot more. In my opinion, you're going to have a lot more variance with that win structure than you are with something that's a little more well-rounded like Iowa runs. Yeah, you know, and, and also I think it goes into the idea of under under Kirk Ferentz, at least at Iowa, it's always been about ball control, right? They're kind of like leaning on the defense to have as limited amount of defensive possessions on the field as possible because they can make those stops or get those turnovers. And especially when, you know, you're limiting amount of possessions the other team has, and on the podcast with Brian that he did with Chad Leistikow, um, he basically said, you know, I think he was talking about um, Minnesota, right? About two years ago, he was talking about Minnesota and how they were averaging 35 points per game coming in. And he basically said, like, you know, if we can slow them down and limit their amount of time with the ball, we can hold them and hold them to about half their average. And I feel like that's kind of I was mantra like. All right, let's try to win with 21 points every single time we go out. Um, you know, they want to show Iowa wants to shorten the game. If you watch some of these air raid offenses in college football or some of these offenses when it's two Big 12 teams that just spread the ball out, those games just I mean, go on YouTube, type in one of those games Oklahoma State versus um Baylor from 2014, right? That file on on YouTube is going to be like 5 hours long. Because there's so many incompletions 
and the, immediately, you know what incompletion leads to? More time left on the play clock, and they're throwing the ball like 70 times per game. And the clock keeps stopping, and those point, that's why the point totals get up to what they get up to. Iowa's going to play complementary football in every sense of the word. You know, everything they do is trying to play together. It's coherent on both sides. So the offense, you know, is obviously trying to score, but there are situations where they're trying to help the defense out because that's what gives Iowa the best chance of winning. You know, we joke about punting is winning. Well, there are times when the best play that you can have is to back the other team up and give them a long field and make them, you know, hopefully you're taking away the big play. So you're going to make them make a series of connected plays to hurt you. So it's playing that cohesive, connected team play. And whoever's going to be the offensive coordinator under Kirk Ferentz is going to have to do that. And I think Brian understands that. And that's part of what makes him, in my opinion, a good fit for what Iowa is doing is he understands that his play calls not just affect what the offense is doing, but affect what the whole team is doing and to make those. And sometimes you just have to eliminate that bad call. You know, you don't have to make the perfect call as an offensive coordinator, but eliminate the bad call. Don't give the other team a position to hurt you because if you make the wrong play and set the other team up for seven, you know, or even setting them up for three, that's more points that you have to score next time, you know, or for however many possessions you have left. So you can make it easier on yourself as an offensive coach by giving your defense some help. See, I think what you just said, a lot of people basically audibly said, that's fucking boring. <laughs> you know, but okay, I'm so different on that personally. Like, what do you, okay, so I'll ask you, this is another comment, I guess, um, criticism of Brian's offense. Um, as far as his play design goes, and as far as the offense being too predictable, it's boring. You know, a lot of people say like, come on, do something like an end around or, or a halfback pass or something more exciting. Go for like a splash play to really bust open the game. What are your thoughts on Brian's just the play designs he chooses to use, how he calls them? Is Iowa's offense boring? I don't think Iowa's offense is boring. Um, I think he has creative designs. They do some things that they've always done. You know, and as an Iowa fan, I get being upset about that. But I'll say this. If you're a fan of any other team and you've followed them for 20, 30, 40 years, guess what? You're probably going to have the same complaints about that program. You know, oh, we always do this. And even as you go through coach, you know, different coaches, there are still going to be things that just show up within your program over the long haul that you're going to be upset about. And I totally understand it. You know, there are things I get frustrated about. There are times when, you know, there are certain things they, Iowa does or doesn't do that I would do differently. It doesn't mean what I want to do is right. I just have a different view on some of that. But if you follow a team for long enough, you could say, oh, they're tenant. Well, they're going to have tendencies. And this, I could predict the call like, okay, then do it like. I don't believe it. You can say run, you can say pass. Okay, you have a 50-50 chance, but you don't know what's coming. You know, maybe when it's fourth and inches, you know that they're going to quarterback sneak. Okay, I'll give you that one. Um, but you don't know. You don't know what play design is coming. It could be a pass, but you have you don't know. 
And, you know, I would challenge anybody to, okay, then before each play, as Iowa breaks the huddle, write down what they're going to do and be specific. Yeah, pause and it. Si- pause your yeah. screen. Yeah. What's your hit rate on that? Because I guarantee it's not as high as you think. Um, and somebody who I've tried to do it, and I feel like I have a good feel for what Iowa is even trying to do. And it's really hard. And I'm somebody who's tried to watch them a bunch. And I'm somebody that I've like, they have tendencies. And Brian mentioned he has a tendency on when he calls his shot plays or his trick plays. And he has to adjust that because teams start to pick up on that. Like they know it's, you know, the common one, like after a turnover, but it's not always that it's like, okay, Iowa just hit a play. They just hit plus field. You know, maybe it was on a big play. Something's coming next probably again. And it's something he mentioned that he needs to start adjusting because he has that tendency to want to go to a certain style of call in a certain field position or after a certain play. And, you know, every coach is in that situation where they're trying to constantly evolve. And I think he's done a nice job. Like the offense is not predictable. I mean, you can say it is, um, but it's just not. You know what we should do? We should uh, team up and collaborate and try to do something where like we write down every single time and take like super, super detail, close detail on Iowa's offense this year and write down player alignments, pre-snap, personnel packages, motions, and as it relates to like the sequencing and variability depending on yardage of, you know, what they end up running. And just see if there are any kind of correlations. It's, it would be, I mean, it'd be super easy. And I'm not, it wouldn't be just like marking down whether it was a pass or not. It would be like down to each individual route and the movement of the offensive line and what the specific play actually was. I, I think it could be pretty easy, especially if we de- like divided each game by half. Like you do halftime or do like the first half and I do the second half kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, those things. That's where I wish like, oh, like how much I've thought about this, like how much would I pay on a per game basis, like a pay-per-view to be able to like pay-per-view the game from like an all 22 angle. Like they, like they sometimes have for the um, playoff games, you know, when they have the multicast, like, because then you really get a feel for how those progressions or how those route combinations work or even something with the blocking. And, you know, this is where like, so I'll tell you right now, NFL teams, like they get this report within two to three hours after a game is over. And a lot yeah. of colleges are getting like there is. So people know there is software and things that are out there right now where teams will submit their stretched view and it's already adjusted and calibrated for whatever angle or distance they have. And it automatically is tracking players and you can go into a, um, a game. Actually, I know somebody who d- did some of this and you could go pull it up. Okay. I want to know this team, if they have third down and less than four, okay. Bring up every route combination. Is there anything that's showing up frequently? And you're probably going to find some tendencies um, within that, but yeah, it'd be really interesting to like, just go way into that and see if what you see. And it probably gives you a feeling too, of what they want to do and what they like out of their personnel. Yeah. And you know, going back to what you said, no, the offense is not predictable. Okay. You don't know as much as you think you do. Also talking about whether or not I think it's boring. 
I think it's a lot of fun, especially in the past two years. I think going back to 2017, 2018, I might have a different take on that. Um, there were some extremely rough games. And even, you know, dating back to 2019, there were some rough games to watch in that season, too, um, from a play calling and even the, cho- the implementation of play design as well. Um, that said, I just think it's flat wrong to call it boring. You know, dating back to 2019, I think Brian has shown a lot in terms of which designs he chooses and which designs he um, actually calls during a game. game. And his sequencing, sequencing, especially last year, has been, I think, some of the best for this style of play in college football, in my opinion. And I said the word that I would describe Brian's offense with is methodical. Um, I think that's spot on, especially last year. I think he was some of the most creative and methodical offensive coordinator work you're going to find. Um, with this specific style and you know it's it's not my favorite offensive kind of style to evaluate and watch in college football but as far as what it does for Iowa is in winning games and being able to break it down and really see the intent behind every single play I think it's so much fun to watch I I don't know about you but I I, I know that you well I guess you just said like you think it's fun as well but um, yeah I I'm right there with you I think I think it's really just an interesting to watch the chess game that they're trying to play and, and what they're seeing out of the defense and how they're reacting. And, you know, I think back to the other, you talk about predictable air raid offense. That's pretty predictable. predictable. Now, yeah. you know, are you predict, you know, you might like it more because there's a, a propensity for more points, you know, more total yards, this and that, like you might like that more, but if you want to talk about purely predictable, that is way more predictable. I would guess, you know, Iowa probably goes into a game with about 60 to 70 plays probably ready to go. Um, I'd guess Brian's play sheet probably has in that 60 to 70 range, probably about what they're going to run. And they might run some plays over, but I'd guess it's somewhere in there. You know, some of those spread offenses or those RPO based offenses, they probably don't have 20. So if you want to talk about purely predictable, they might run the same play eight straight plays. Uh, Is that predictable? Uh, Yeah. Now, that doesn't make it easier to stop necessarily for some of those, especially in college if when they'll let linemen go five, six, seven yards downfield at times. Um, But so I just the predictable one does bother me when people say that because it's not predictable. Um you're not going to be able to go through and say what they're going to do every single play. And, you know, you can say, well, I knew they were going to do this and that. Okay. You know, you can cherry pick your spots and things like that. But the, some of those other offenses that those people then will want are actually way more predictable from that sense. Yeah. You know, a lot of these receivers that come out of these spread and air raid kind of offenses, when offenses, when they go to the NFL, the issue is 90% of their college career, as far as routes run, is the same route. I mean, if, if that doesn't tell you all you need to know, I mean, you watch Amir, you watch Brandon Smith, you watch almost any Irish receiver over the past decade, you know, they're going to have a pretty balanced route tree. You know, it's going to be a variety of different routes. So if you're, you have a guy that's lining up in the same spot, I guess, if you want to call Brandon Smith, right, he's going to be traditional X say he's just lined up right there at the X spot. He's running a variety of different routes out of that spot. It's not like he's on the field to do one thing. Um, 
but a lot of these air raid and spread offenses definitely are running the same kind of plays. And, you know, I think there's a time for some of those concepts and for some of that. And, you know, you go back to the win routes, like I think there's a time where those in a place where those are more functional. You know, I think about when you get inside the red zone and the field shrinks and those that's the hardest place to pass. You know, when you because all of a sudden the defense has less open field to cover things get passing windows get shrunk you know all of that starts to happen and that's the time in my opinion where if I were to you know critique what Brian and really what Iowa has done for the last in my opinion 15 years is a lack of some of those win setups when they get down into those areas you know I would like to see more of those where you're looking for you know, one guy, maybe two in those situations, because you're probably not going to have time to make read one, two, three, four. Uh, I do wish they would do more of that because in those situations, um, I thought Iowa sometimes has a history of underutilizing certain red zone targets. And I don't always mean red zone targets about the big guy. You know, that's kind of where our mind, I always think wants to go. It's like the, the guy that can just post up or hit the fade route. And sometimes it's the quick jittery guy that can make one move, get leverage on a defender, and that's the best option. So I think Iowa, if there would be a critique about the ways, finding that balance of those replays with situations where, okay, I've got my win here within the context of how they're running the offense. Yeah, and you know, I think there's a reason why, um, as Iowa fans, we remember so many of those win routes because they ended up being massive plays and and key situations in those games. Those game those routes were or plays weren't called when it's you know ten and nothing Iowa in the first quarter of of a football game, right? Those are happening when it's ten nine late in the third quarter or you know down by eight points with four minutes to go. And the reason why those are successful is because the entire game leading up to it, they that hasn't been a thing. Like they haven't really had to cover deep and because of the peer progression kind of offense. But I do think to your point, I think more implementation isn't going to hinder that. I think that they underutilize it. And yeah, it's effective in the spurts that they do use it, even when it falls incomplete. But I think it could be um, effective more often. You can run that more often and still find the same kind of lack of coverage or effectiveness in those calls. And it's just finding that balance. You know, I'm going to go way back, but I think back to, you know, 2002 Iowa versus Purdue. And I think of two big plays. One, Dallas Clark getting a little pass out of the, you know, he's what, a three-yard route, just kind of a little out, and then outrunning everybody like 90, 95 yards to the end zone. All right, that's just a, okay, I'm going to make my throw. It's a player making a play. That's not a win route. But the opposite of that is, you know, the next, you know, or the other big play from that game is when Dallas Clark sneaks out and on a misdirection play. And that is a, you know, a play designed, you know, this is a winning play. Like we're setting it up. This play is designed for one person. We think we can beat the defense with this one concept. And he sneaks out. It's the go ahead ends up being the game winning touchdown pass Two totally different plays from a play design situation one is a we are designing this for this one person the other is we made the right read made the right throw and that one player made the play and as Iowa's offense evolves and I think their recruiting has 
evolved and getting more players who can make those sort of plays that Dallas Clark made that day, that's when I think we're going to see this offense even take the next, not just step, but what, in my opinion, could be a leap forward. Somebody like, you know, I I love what Tyron Tracy brings and Tyler Goodson, what those guys bring. But now all of a sudden you bring in uh, Keegan Johnson, who we've mentioned, and Arlen Bruce, you know, those sort of guys as well, and some of the young running backs that have those that ability to make what seems like the mundane play turn into the memorable one. You know, and, and you just said Iowa's offense is kind of, and well, you you called it um, Brian's offense improving, right? And then right there, you were just talking about how it's so close to being even more evolved and more exciting than what we're even seeing right now. More like explosive plays, I guess. And I'm going to tell you guys right now, it's going to be better this year. Even losing two offensive tackles, the internal core of that offensive line is still there. And, uh, you know, as far as the deficiencies that Spencer Peters had last year, one of them was not stepping up in the pocket, you know, uh, or, or I guess one of the ones that you can't point to as being a deficiency is stepping up in the pocket. So he's always going to have that extra time. And if he can make some of these throws that are part of this design and with more explosiveness and Tyrone Tracy taking the next step and guys like Charlie Jones and, and Keegan Johnson, who looks exciting um, and Sam Laporta even and Tyler Goodson out of the backfield. I mean, there are so many weapons there and I'm, I'm going to, you know, call this a blind shot in the dark, but I don't think both tackle spots are going to suck this year for the Iowa Hawkeyes. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think they've got players there that will be, I don't want to use the word serviceable because I think they're going to be better than that. I think the offensive line, barring a rash of injuries, uh, is going to be as good as any in the Big Ten. You know, it's going to be a really high level you know, obviously, if injuries, that's a totally different topic. But if they are healthy and even reasonably healthy, you're going to have guys go in and out of the lineup periodically during a long season. But that offensive line is going to be really good, which sets the stage for a quarterback to feel comfortable, which gets your run game going, which opens up all the other window dressing to hit some of those plays that you can feel comfortable taking a shot play. And in, you can make a shot play instead of having to go max protection where your tight end and both your backs stay in, and maybe it's a two-person route. You know, maybe you know it becomes a three or a four-person route, and still get the same looks while you know stretching the defense. You know, to cover more options. Yeah, and you know, as far as the personnel turnover for the offense. You know, there definitely was personnel turnover and unignorable, right? Because Amir Smith Marset was a great route runner. Brandon Smith, even though the target share, I guess, was down a little bit lower than um, somebody who's going to make a significant impact on the offense probably would be. I think he's still that just that presence, his ability as a run blocker, um, his speed to open up a defense and a lot of over routes. I think that a lot of those things are going to be missed. Right. And there maybe there's going to be some questions and a little bit of early season kind of hurdles that they have to face. But there's still so much talent there. And this is a still a very strong core. And if Spencer Peters can build off of that second half that he had last season. I mean, the play calling was as good as we've ever seen it. The execution last year was as good as we've ever seen it. And well, at least in a long time, um, I'm excited for this offense this year. I want to see how they 
they incorporate some of those new players. And let's be honest, a player who, when a guy comes in and hasn't played much, like they're always going to, we're always going to think about the things they can do and not the things that eventually we find out a player can't do. It's just like when somebody goes through the draft process, you know, they pick apart every little thing that they can't do. Think about like Tristan Wirfs. Well, can he not do this or not do that? It's not about that. It's like, well, what does a guy bring? And I think we're going to see the offense continue to progress in that way about what guys bring to the table and not always just like, well, we can't do this because this guy's not capable. And there are times when that's the truth and you have to structure what you do around that. You know, we saw Iowa's offense struggle when they could not, you know, block up the middle on pass protection. So you have to completely change what you do. You know, if, you know, the Iowa had a few years where you just can't run outside zone. You know, they didn't have the backs for it. Okay, so you have to change what you do. But how does this offense progress from allowing some of those guys to make the plays they're capable do, of making and putting them in this spots or, you know, whether it's open field positions, you know, in the pass or the run game, how do we put those guys in position to make the plays that I feel are there? Yeah. And one of those players I think is going to really test that. And we'll see how this goes for him this season is Tyron Tracy, right? I mean, everybody that is a fan or on the outside looking in and even the coaches obviously know that he is a massive playmaker. I mean, you go back to his freshman year, that Northwestern catch where he's surrounded by about five different Northwestern players and ends up turning into like an 80 yard touchdown run after the catch. I mean, clearly this dude is built like a running back, has quicks like a receiver. Um, The issue is that he has one of the highest drop percentages per target um, in all of college football. So you're going to have to live with those hiccups because I don't think that's going to be a thing that drastically improves. But if you can turn him into just a playmaker four times per game and give him an actual opportunity to do so, I think Iowa's offense is going to see a spark in that. You have to give him an opportunity to do something with the ball in his hands because as you've you know mentioned different plays, he's a guy that's capable of making a guarded play work, you know, making a guy miss and then or or whatever the situation, make the first guy miss, run through a tackle, squirt away from a couple guys. You know, a defensive back comes up and goes to just brush him out of bounds and he's strong enough to push off and stay in and make a big play. Like you just have to give somebody like him an opportunity to make those plays and trust that, you know, he's a fourth year player now or a third. Yeah. Fourth year player because of his red shirt. Um, you have to trust somebody like him to make those plays because the offense is going to need some of that. And as much as I like what Iowa does offensively in a lot of situations, we have to also be honest to the game in general is going to more scoring. And as other offenses evolve and it makes it harder for even the best of Iowa defenses to lock them down, you have to evolve with it and you have to score points. Iowa does not need to become an air raid, try to, you know, they don't have to score 40. But getting to that 31, 32 point threshold is important and going to become more and more important as time goes because offenses are progressing. But not just that, like the rules are constantly going to be tailored to the offense because that's what brings eyeballs, that's what brings revenue money, and that's how the sport is built. And it's going to continue that way forever. 
I mean, there's just, there's nothing that's going to truly slow that down. So you have to continue to make those steps to realize we can take advantage of certain situations. And I'm going to steal a quote that, that Brian used a bunch in his interview. You know, you got to do business as business is done. Yeah. And if they're going to let you do things by the rules or by the unwritten rules, such as the rule is you can go three yards downfield as a blocker and still pass. If they're going to let you go four, five, six, then you have to push that boundary some. Now, you're not going to become an RPO-based team, but you need to push that some. If they're going to let offensive linemen hold and the focus is on no quote-unquote cut blocks or whatever that means for how they're viewing it, then you've got to play that way. If they're going to allow, if they're going to call more defensive pass interferences, if that's how business is done, you need to get into that business more. And that's what I'm hoping to see them do is as the rules are constantly creeping to the offense, you've got to take advantage of those rules. Applause. Very well said, my friend. Very well said. All right. Let's address the topic or the, the I guess the title of this podcast is Brian Ferentz, a good offensive coordinator on three. Yes or no. One, two, three. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes he is. I, I I think with you and me, it, it's very clear cut. And I hope hopefully, you know, building off of last season, it becomes even more um, clear cut for all the Iowa fans out there that they realize this Iowa offense is different. It's just it's just different, and it's it's going to be, I think, a treat to watch this season. I'm so excited for that aspect of that growth, and I don't think many people will know Iowa was second in the Big Ten in scoring last year. So it's not like we're talking about a team that that lost some important players, but returns a really nice, solid core off of the second highest scoring offense in the Big Ten last year, only behind Ohio State. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, stories about this offense or that offense and what these guys do or that guy's that team does. This offense was already at a pretty high level, you know, so and we both think that they can take another step forward. And if they go from that 31, 32 point average to 34, you know, all I got to say is if you're going to average 34 points. Phil Parker isn't giving up 34 points a game. <laughs> like uh, we both think Brian Ferentz is a good offensive coordinator. Like Phil Parker is like statue level defensive coordinator. So, so those small changes to get to increase two, two, three points a game on average. Um, and we know that when Iowa loses, it tends to be in that one possession range gives them so much more leeway and then the play calling as they go when it's not a every possession matters. I mean, they all matter, but every little possession, every two yards that you can gain or in return give the other team might be the game. I'll just say this. Spencer Petrus in the, the first half of the season left some points out on the on the the score on the, out on the field, right? And even in the Nebraska game, left some points out on the field. If he improves as much as he kind of showed a glimpse of at the back end of last season, 
Iowa's offense is scoring three or four more points per game this season. And guess what? Hot take alert. They run the table. They win every damn game before the Big Ten championship game if Spencer Peters takes that next step. That, that That's a bold statement, but one that's not like he doesn't have to be Heisman Trophy right level no like for three or four it's it's making it's it might be two plays two passes a game you know that are the difference and that's very doable um to go from where he was at to those two plays and you know i think back to that wisconsin game last year you know he hits a mirror on that deep pass you know in the way some of the plays he made in the second half there was no way he was making those plays the first half of the season yeah no no chance no chance. And I think that's the the question. I think it all really comes down. I know this is a, a crazy take, right? Um, that a, a QB is uh, like wins are sort of tied to a QB a lot of the time. Um, but you watch that um, nor or the what was it? The Northwestern game where he threw the two picks at the end. Was that Northwestern? Yeah, he had three second half interceptions. Yeah. So you watch that Northwestern game. That's on Spencer. The Purdue game was on fumbles. Right from uncharacteristically from Makai Sargent, I believe Tyler Goodson as well. Um, just bad, unfortunate turnovers. Um, Nebraska, Spencer Petrus missed a lot of throws, and that was like one of the only close games, the other close games that they played in. Um, those all tie back to well, two of those tie back directly to Spencer. Yeah, what was it? Iowa's Iowa finished with a six game win streak at the end winning by an average of 21 points a game. <laughs> so, and that's skewed for a couple games, obviously, but you think back to that Nebraska game, like that shouldn't be a nail-biter game the way it was, but some of the plays that were there weren't made. And there are going to be plays every game that are there that they don't make. So it's not a situation where he has to be perfect, you know, because he's going to miss throws. Coaches are going to miss some of the calls. Officials are going to miss calls, things like that. But, it's two plays, two passes, you know, per game that, you know, whether it's a completion that would have been incomplete or it's putting it right on the number. A guy is able, somebody like Tyron Tracy is able to make the play without breaking stride to the correct shoulder, able to avoid that first tackler. And now it's a big play. And instead of, you know, ending a possession, it's seven points for Iowa. Absolutely agree. Um, and that said, you know, we could talk for hours and we will be talking for hours all season long. Um, if you join us on our next podcast, we'll be previewing Indiana. Um, before we go, though, Thad, is there anything else you would like to add to this one? No, just uh, as always, thanks to everybody for listening. We're going to I'm excited to start getting into some, you know, first game prep. So what's Iowa specifically going to look like, do we think? What's uh, their opponent, so Indiana, going to bring to the table? How is Iowa going to combat that? And what are the changes from a historical standpoint? So as I said, leading into that, uh, check my Twitter. I'm going to have some kind of passing information about historical context, where Iowa's been with that. And I'm just so, like, I can taste it. The season's almost here. You know, I can can taste that big-ass turkey leg and, (laughs) you know, everything that's going on in Iowa city. So, uh, I'm just so excited. The season's almost here. Yeah, guys hit and girls 
Hit us with a follow. I can't make that same mistake more than once. Um, hit us with a follow on Twitter, me at RobDFB and Thad at TNels20. You can also follow our work at BlackheartGoldPants.com. We're going to be covering Iowa football all year long. That's kind of our bread and butter. So stick with us. Um, tune in the next podcast. But until that comes, we will see you all in the next podcast. <laughs> Take it easy.